Welcome back to another episode of the Unleashed Business Podcast. On this episode, we talked to Margaret Shannon from Tiana Holiday Park. Mate, she was a wealth of information, certainly in the tourism industry. She's got lots going on, very busy, very planned, very strategic lady. Yeah, certainly I took a lot of things out of it, you know, from that planning strategy. And, you know, you hear a lot of people say that they don't make plans because you don't know what's going to happen and all that sort of thing. But... You know, in one of the most unpredictable times, it helped guide her through. Yeah, you know that's what right. to do. So, you know, if if she was able to, you know, use parts of that plan, then it was mm. still a success. You know, yeah. although the plan didn't happen exactly as expected, you know, it was still a success because it guided her through a tricky time. Yeah, and pretty crazy, interesting business and and growth sort of discussion mm. there as to how she's managing a number of businesses in a number of locations, geographically spread with. You know, a number of different people in a, a completely different market, but how all of that sort of, I suppose, crosses over, and and those, the ability to spot and know and create a market and and preach to that market, doesn't matter really what the market looks like as long as you know what it is. The tools that she's using works for all three or four industries that she plays in. Mm. And just the passion that she shows for her job and the industry, yeah. it's its pretty infectious to, yeah. to talk to. So I think you'll get a lot out of it. I think that last question, mate, where she talked about what she wants to see in five years really, really will help people understand just how passionate she is about the industry and the local area and, and um, the things she wants to see happen either for her business or for businesses around her. All right, hand over to Margaret. Look, it's been an interesting journey over the last few years. So um, I'm primarily based um, more recently in the caravan and camping industry um, and sort of my roles changed over the last couple of years. Um, We've sort of diversified within our business, our portfolio. So we've got a number of tourism businesses, but uh, primarily my career started in in hotels. So um, I went to university, did a tourism degree, which was a bit of a departure from what I actually started doing, which was science. Yeah. <laughs> um, Long way apart. Yeah, exactly. Look, I, I actually started doing forensic science and then worked out that I was far too social to be stuck in a laboratory by myself all day. And I thought, well, what's a career where you can be social and, and meet people and, and, you know, travel the world? Well, tourism's a, a classic example. Mm. Um, and look, you know, it, it has suited me 100% down to the ground. Worked in the hotel industry for a number of years. Um, spent a little bit of time working for the cruise ship industry, so for a destination ground handler based out of Sydney. Um, And then after my daughter was born and I took a couple of years off, was looking to get back into the industry and again, looking for something that could give me a little bit of work-life balance um, where I could, you know, look after my daughter and still be working because I was getting a bit bored at home by myself (laughs) with a child and, um, yeah, looked at the caravan and camping industry. Um, I was probably a bit naive going in, thinking work-life balance. It, did, yeah. it um, wasn't quite finishing at three o'clock and walking along the beach. Yep. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been great. The caravan and camping industry is an incredible industry to be a part of. It's very much a cottage industry uh, historically, yeah. um, but it's really starting to kind of step up and, and throw its weight around in the greater tourism sphere. Mm. Yeah. And was it straight into the Tiona where you are now or was there somewhere that you, you went into first and... Yeah, no, I've managed a couple of parks. Um, yep. So my first park was actually in Foster. It was the um, Big Four holiday park at Foster, which is now uh, the NRMA. So uh, I kind of cut my teeth on that. I was very, very lucky to have some incredible mentors um, with both the owner and also the general manager of the park that were there. Um, it's what I call a little bit of a unicorn park. It, it's just the most phenomenal park. 
Mm. Um, probably one of the best ones on the coast. Um, so it was great to be a part of that team and a part of that park's journey. Um, I left there, worked at another park up at Ballina for about 18 months, um, which was, again, trying to help them create something from uh, an asset that acquired that just needed a little bit of work, a little bit of love and attention. Um, we, we made great inroads with that one. That's now another big four. Um, and then the opportunity came up to to manage and have an ownership share in Tiona Holiday Park at the Pacific Palms. And it's something we'd looked at uh, a couple of years prior when it had first come up for sale and definitely saw the potential, um, but then it, it just wasn't the right time. So 2019 was the right time, right place, and, and I was free to sort of come back to Foster, uh, which I missed. It's yeah. a, a great area to live and work and play. Yeah, I suppose 2019 you didn't see COVID coming. No, no. <laughs> yeah, it felt like a good time. Definitely. I, look, 18 I, months. I don't think anyone saw that coming and it's funny. Um, I look back and, and we did a fairly um, comprehensive due diligence process on Tiona when we took yeah. over and a fairly um, significant business plan as well. And the business plan was looking at the next five years. And I can tell you in all Not of much. my business yeah. planning, all of my risk management a pandemic did not factor in that. <laughs> I think I factored everything else in. Um, but it, it's, I think it's, it's been a learning curve. Um, and I think for not just our part, but for businesses in general, yeah. um, there's a lot of conversations in the industry about what's normal. We don't even know what normal That's is. Right. And I think yeah. it's that um, what is normal now is being agile as businesses and being able to kind of navigate those things that get thrown at you that you just can't predict happening. Yeah, for sure. I, I, when COVID first hit, and I'm probably jumping far too far ahead early, but I remember coming back, we were in Queensland at the time, we're like, we better get back across this border before they lock us down. We jumped back across and we stayed in a little town um, just this side of the border. I'm not certain of what it was called, but it was at a big four. And I was talking to the park manager there and he's like, oh, they're talking about shutting out park. And I was like, that yep. can't happen. Like that doesn't <laughs> exist. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think you'll be right. Don't worry about it. Well, it was interesting because we, we'd just taken over the park in December. So we took over five days before Christmas, which was a challenge in itself with staffing. <laughs> yeah, don't don't yeah. recommend taking over a business five days before peak. But we managed. Um, and, of course, there was bushfires as well. So we yeah. just had mm. six months of bushfires. And I think our region was a little more fortunate than others in that we'd had the peak of the bushfires earlier in about August, September, October. Um, so the south coast was being very heavily impacted. We were seeing a lot of that visitation over summer being driven to the north and to our region because there was nothing left to burn, basically. Yeah. Um, but then when COVID hit, um, it, was, it was actually on the 100th day that we'd had Tiona that we had to close <sighs> the gates to the park. Yeah. And instead of you look at, you know, almost like the presidents of America, what do you want to achieve in the first 100 days of operation? Yeah. <laughs> Closing the park on the 100th day was not, again, <laughs> in the plan at all. And I think it was it, it was a horrible, horrible day and trying to be positive for the team, trying to be, um, you know, even other operators in the industry, everyone was asking questions. It was just the biggest challenge was the uncertainty. Yeah, for sure. No one knew what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. No one knew how this was going to play out. Were we going to be locked down for weeks? Were we going to be locked down for months? Were we going to be locked down for years? And so it was trying to go, okay, what can we control? What can we actually do to, to mitigate this or to, to bounce back from this? And that's when we already had a fairly um, significant capital investment plan. Mm. And that was one of the things that we looked at and went, well, we always say, you know, you can't do these things while you've got people in the park. Let's look at maybe bringing some of these things forward because we were always confident that it would bounce back. 
Yeah, yeah. And when you look at major external events, and this was an external event, um, you look at major events, whether it be um, even overseas with terrorist attacks or with major weather events or with things like that that impact consumers actually have fairly short memories. Yeah. And it doesn't take long for people to then go, you know what, I just want to get back to normal. I want to get back to travelling. I want to go to my favourite holiday destination. So I think we had a level of confidence it would bounce back. What we didn't know was when. Mm. So we made the decision to bring forward as much of our capital works planning as possible because we knew that we needed to be in the strongest position to be competitive when everyone started travelling again. When people were willing to buy, for sure. And that obviously came off the back of some pretty strategic planning before that. Um, One thing that we've seen a lot during COVID times and especially in that sort of space was that there was a lot of business owners, owners and a lot of businesses that were pretty tired by then already. So that they didn't really have a great deal of choice but to buckle up and, and deal with what was coming. But lots of them by that stage, the planning and stuff, like they probably get a little bit bored of it. Like uh, I know what I'm doing. I've been doing this for five or ten years. It's yeah. the same thing every year. I, intuitively I know that November this is what we're doing and we're planning for December and then – we ignore our life until April and, and then we start to look at an, I don't know, whatever we do from there. Do you feel like you would have been in position to make those decisions without the hard work and the planning before that? Um, look, it's, it's hard to say with hindsight. Um, I, I think you're 100% right. There was already a lot of fatigue um, from, from a business owner perspective in the industry in terms of people had just got through bushfires and dealing with the impacts of that and then COVID hit. And then, of course, we've had two years of floods um, mm-hmm. up and down the north coast. So um, if there was ever any, and I'm sick of hearing the word resilience, um, <laughs> but if there was ever any lessons in business resilience, certainly the last three years have been testament to that. Um, look, I think... We were always, and the the approach we take with all of our businesses, we're always very, um, I guess, certain and and very, um, that's what I'm looking for. We we know what the direction of our businesses are. Um, We're always very clear, I guess would be the word, in terms of what our business proposition is, Mm -hmm. um, what our product is, what our market is. Now, that doesn't mean it's fixed or intransigent, but we do adapt it, but we ultimately know what our direction is and where yep. we're going. And I think it's important as a business owner to have that really clear understanding of what your market is, what your product is and what your value proposition is. Yeah. Because when you have those external events, that will dictate how you respond to them. Yeah. And it has to be a certain amount of flexibility, absolutely, but mm. you've got to kind of keep that North Star. So basically, who am I selling to? What am I selling them? And why would they buy off me and not the park down the road? Yeah. And, and I think one of our values as well as a business, and, and we do it across all levels of our business, whether it be our, our front office staff or our housekeeping staff and, and even at an ownership level, um, we always say don't focus on the problem, mm-hmm. focus on the solution. Yeah. Acknowledge the problem, absolutely, yeah. but then turn your attention, turn your focus to what the actual solution is. Yeah. And I think COVID was a classic example. We were faced with a situation we couldn't control with it, what could we do? What could we control? What was the next step or the next two months, six months, 12 months going to look like? And we continue to do that if there's changes in market, if there's changes in the competitive landscape, if there's even within the business, if there's new technology that's disrupting. I think it's looking at 
how can we navigate that, not focus on the problem, but focus on what the solution is and what that looks like for us, keeping in mind our, our value proposition. Yeah. And that sort of focus on the solution, there's not many places that that doesn't work in business because if, if a customer comes to you with a problem, obviously you can stand there all day and talk to them about a problem, um, but ideally what you want to do is fund a resolution, fix it, and everyone 100%. moves on happy. Yeah. Um, and normally it is that everyone moves on half happy, but at least they're half happy. Yeah. One person's not incredibly disappointed. And you're not going to please 100% of people 100% of the time, yeah. but it's about having a positive mindset and a growth mindset rather than having one that's negative and it is going to then, um, you know, you're not you're not going to find a solution yeah. for anyone. So. And I'd imagine, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, you're the one in this space, but... I'd imagine a lot of those older, more tired parks probably weren't in position to make that. They they were probably done. Like they're, yeah. they're, there's lots of, and it's happening a lot through business, even locally they've seen a lot of acquisitions now because even the ones that weren't quite burnt out, they, they got burnt the last three or four years. Um, and I know through the tourism caravan camping sort of space, progressively for the last 15 years that I've been servicing them, they're all big four or like one of the big names now, is that because of industry burnout? Um, no, I don't think so. I think, um, I mean, it may be a factor. Um, the industry has undergone a, a rapid um, sort of corporatization, hmm. uh, And I think what it is is there's uh, a number of entities such as, um, you know, Discovery and uh, NRMA and um, Reflections as a classic example as well, uh, where they've actually seen both the opportunity um, but also they've got the resources and the ability to overcome some of the challenges that parks were facing from a resourcing perspective. So you've got a lot of parks. Consumer expectations have changed massively since the 70s, 80s when sort of caravan parks had their heydays. Mm. So you've now got a consumer that's much more savvy. We're competing with uh, resorts. We're competing with international destinations. So from the caravan park industry perspective, you've got a lot of consumers that are perhaps looking for, uh, and not all of them, the, the traditional caravan and camping market is still very strong, uh, but you have also got a large section of the market, particularly with families that are looking for more activities and facilities and mm. cabins. And I think a lot of the investment in caravan parks has, has been in response to what the market is demanding. Yeah. And a lot of these large companies do have the resources to be able to meet the needs of that market, which has been fantastic for the mm -hmm. caravan and camping industry. And it's also bought a level of professionalism and, um, again, more resources from an administrative point of view. If you've yeah. got a mum and dad operator in a caravan park and there's still fantastic mum and dad operators out yeah. there, but ultimately as well as managing the park, they're also the sales manager, they're the HR manager, they're the grounds mm -hmm. manager, they're the... Uh, accounts manager, you know, mm. they're covering all of the roles where having the support and bringing the corporate structure of some of these larger companies has really helped to develop these parks and develop the processes that they need to take them to the next level. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense that the customer went from, without trying to sound bad, I guess, they went from the cheapest possible holiday experience of Caravan historically to $300,000 worth of vehicle and caravan turning yeah. up on your doorstep and they want a jumping castle and a, a water slide and a, yeah. all sorts of fun stuff. Um, I, I assume that that administrative support helped a lot, again, through COVID, through that sort of stuff because it's a lot easier for a big corporation to flick the switch and get stuff happening. 
Um, again, if you think about a mum and dad show, and most of the ones, certainly at least locally, that still survive, they're generational. Like they're, if the parents are involved, like they've been doing it for 40 or 50 years, the last yeah. thing they want to do is change every single thing that they do, they do and start like it's day yeah. one. So it does make sense to get that external investment, whether it's from cash money investment or just time and knowledge. Yeah, definitely. And I think, though, um, it's still important to have managers at a park level, um, even with that corporate, that are uh, both passionate about the caravan and camping industry and about the business, um, but ultimately they're the ones at the coalface, they're mm-hmm. the ones dealing with the customers. And, and, again, customer needs and motivations are still changing, and particularly with COVID, we're seeing that as a society, the way people's motivations, their behaviour, the way in which they book, all that sort of thing is changing. And the data at a corporate level can certainly give you some insights into that. But yeah. ultimately it's the park managers uh, at the at the coalface and dealing with the customer that are getting that in real time. Yeah. And I think that's where um, as much as there's, there's benefits to both sides and both sides benefit the industry, uh, I think the mum and dad operators, you do perhaps see, um, I, I guess, a clearer um, personality that the parks have because there's – there is that agility to then respond to customer demands and we see that even in our park. If someone comes in and says, you know, we don't like this and we start to see that as a trend, we can adapt and adjust that straight away rather than going through levels of management to get a decision. Yeah. It it does make sense, obviously, because traditional marketing was mum and dad caravan parks. Like if you think of industry in general and then it went to commoditised sort of stuff, like let's just give our message to the the market, whoever they are. Mm. Um, and it, nowadays, obviously, marketing is so hard to get people's attention that you need to know specifically who you're trying to talk to with what message. And very likely you have to have six or seven messages going for those six or seven key groups yeah. and then maybe three or four other messages for everyone else hoping to snag a lucky win. Yeah. Um, but it, it's just not like it was, I suppose, probably when those acquisitions started happening in that people are somewhat they somewhat expect a personalised experience now, even if they are turning up to a, a big four or one of the majors. And yeah. that's a key advantage, obviously, that mum and dad parks have and have always had. Um, but I suppose trying to blend the two. With the setup or the structure with that, it, with big four, for example, like in your experience, are they like a franchise setup or are they? They are. So you've essentially got, uh, I guess, three different models within the caravan and camping industry. So you've got the mum and dad operators who own their parks and operate them. Um, you've got the corporates um, such as um, Discovery, NRMA, um, Tasman, who own their parks and, and have operations managers across them. Uh, then you've got the marketing franchises. So uh, the the main ones, and there's a couple of smaller ones as well, the main ones are Big Four and G'day. Mm-hmm. Um, G'day is uh, owned by Discovery Parks. Um, and both those two are very, very strong brands. G'day used to be at the top parks brand. Uh, and you've got a couple of smaller ones like Cooey and Family Parks. So essentially they operate as marketing franchises. Uh, it creates a network of parks um, that, you know, do communicate with each other and, and having been on both sides of it, um, they're both very, very good at doing that and you do get those connections. I'm still good friends with a lot of other managers at Big Four Parks and also um, have a lot of um, friends within the G'day Parks Network as well, which we're currently affiliated with at Tiona. And I think it's um, the marketing franchise model is great for those mum and dad operators as well. It gives mm. them um, part of something larger to be a part of. 
um, and gives them that support from a community focus as well as more marketing reach that they can't necessarily get with their their own marketing spend on a regional basis. So they're reaching a wider audience for the same bucks. Yeah, because business is hard now. I imagine especially in tourism, historically there's a lot of businesses or a lot of families that used to holiday and they holiday in the same place every year for 20 or 30 years. Like one of my neighbours the other day was going somewhere um, and he was like, I have to go because this is possibly my pops last year. He's been going there since mum and dad were kids. Um, we need to keep this tradition going. And I, I thought in my head, I was like, I have absolutely no interest in going to the same spot over and over year after year. And it's funny you say that because we um, sort of witnessed that. Um, so we advertise at the Caravan and Camping Show. We have a stand at the um, CCIA Sydney and Newcastle shows. So we've got the Sydney Caravan and Camping Super Show coming up in April. And last year we noticed at the Newcastle show, which was the first show we had since COVID, um, we noticed that trend and we weren't sure if it was a behavioural thing. As I said, post-COVID, we're getting a lot of people, um, their motivations had changed. But we had a lot of people coming through the show going, we've always gone to the same location <laughs> for the last 15, 20 years. We're looking for somewhere new. Yeah. And, yeah, I'm not sure if that was an after effect of COVID or whether there's a generational shift happening as well where you have got a generation coming through that have gone caravan and camping with the family. They still want to do that, but they almost want to do it on their own terms yeah. and explore new places and a little bit of that wanderlust creeping in as well. So, And it could even be a combination of both, but it's so great to see. What do you guys do then in industry to combat that? Because if you're coming into an industry that historically has had repetitive customers that, that might – have a lifetime value over 20 or 30 years and likely now you've got a, a lifetime value of might it might still stretch for 20 or 30 years but they're probably not going to transact every year or as often as previously like what's the thought in industry of how you combat that yeah it's an interesting good question um I think it's there's there is enough to go around. Yeah. Um, the pie is huge, and I think we tend to not compete with. And this is what the caravan industry does phenomenally well in terms of the tourism space. Mm. Is unlike other sectors of the industry, we don't compete with each other. Mm. Um, so caravan parks, you'll find we we see the other parks either in our network or even in our state or nationally as part of the wider caravan and camping industry community. Yeah. Um, our competition isn't that. Our competition is the cruise ships. Our competition is the offshore holiday resorts in Fiji or Bali. So there is a large enough domestic market, and we're seeing that with the delay times in terms of people being able to get vans um, during COVID, and that's certainly improved now. There is such a strong demand for domestic caravan and camping product in Australia it is the quintessential Australian holiday. Mm. You go, everyone's got a story about a caravan or camping trip they went on as a kid or they've gone away with a group of their mates caravan and camping or, you know, they've caught up with friends or whatever it may be. Everyone's got a caravan and camping story. Mm. And I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. And you may lose them for a year or a couple of years while they explore new destinations. Ultimately, I think consumers are creatures of habit. They will come back. It might not be every year, but they will come back. And by the same token, you'll have people from other destinations that will then be coming to yours because they'll be doing the same thing. So I, I think across the board, it all evens out. 
Um, and I think as well, it's you're also seeing a trend towards caravan parks um, becoming destinations and getting more involved on a destination level as well. Yeah. Um, so it's becoming more of an ecosystem as opposed to just a standalone park. Yeah, and I suppose that's the benefit to a G'day Park, for instance, is that you get the offshoots of, of other parks doing their job well. They get the offshoots of you doing your job well and the, the tide rises or boats rise with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Can we, um, I don't know, did you have another question about Tars? No, no, yeah. I, I was going to dig into maybe tools or... Yeah, I was just going to rewind a little bit because you we jumped straight into yeah. today, obviously. Um, before that, you started in, in um, science, you graduated uni in um, tourism, and then you got into the hotels industry. That was in New Zealand or was that in Australia? That's right. So I was originally in New Zealand, yeah. um, worked in... Uh, conferencing event event operations in a couple of big chain hotels in New Zealand uh, and then made the shift over to an Austra- uh, to Australia in 2006. So, yeah. Um, yeah, just chasing. There was great work opportunities at that time um, in Australia that New Zealand couldn't offer. Yeah. Um, again, the larger hotels, so moved to Brisbane and moved into that space. Yeah, Cause so you weren't in caravanning in that in New Zealand at all because it's a pretty big market over there for caravanning stuff, mm. isn't it? It absolutely is. And again, yeah. like I said, everyone's got a caravan and camping story. We used to go caravan and camping as kids up at Twizel, yeah. so had fond memories of um, camping. But no, wasn't involved in the caravan and camping industry. Yeah. But um, yeah, more recently I have got a lot of friends in the industry who work over and have parks over there. So uh, they're going really, really well. Um, they've obviously got a, a slightly different market to Australia. Australia's yeah. got a lot of um, grey nomads in the industry that are doing the, and even families that are doing the Great Lap um, and a lot more areas, a lot more competition um, for exploration. But um, yeah, New Zealand's got a very strong caravan and camping industry too. Yeah, I imagine it's, a, like you said, a different market. I, we were over there a few years ago. It's obviously pre-COVID, maybe four or five years ago. And there's a lot of free camps at, at beaches, like at key, key locations. I know in Australia, there's lots of opportunity for free camping. It's all, almost invariably on a creek somewhere or west. Um, but, yeah. but the cool thing about New Zealand was there was like, there's two or three car parks at every beach just about. And they're like, you can stay here for the night for free up to two nights or whatever. Yeah. And it's an interesting one. It's something that... Um, the New Zealand model has been an interesting one to follow um, because particularly in Australia, there's been a lot of chatter in the industry over the recent um, years with relation to free camping and the impact that that has on commercial caravan parks. And um, I think it's, again, it's, you've got to look at what the consumer wants in responding to their needs. And I think there's room uh, and New Zealand's demonstrated this well, there's room in the industry for everyone, um, but it's just ensuring um, that, if there are free camps that they're done in a compliant way mm. um, so that you're addressing uh, any concerns about, because ultimately free camping is not free. Someone's paying yeah, for yeah, the sewage, yeah. someone's paying to mow the lawns or keep the site upkeep. So uh, it's just making sure that with those type of areas that it's done in a sustainable way that's not impacting on the environment, not impacting on local communities yeah. and not impacting on operators that have maybe made significant investment. But I think there's definitely, um, yeah, it's an interesting model to watch yeah. in New Zealand. And I imagine they're very different consumers, like a, very likely at least certainly for me, my experience is that you, we went to free camps when we were young or whatever and now we're like, oh, it'd be nice to have a hot shower every night. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. So pr- yeah. it's probably just, different I suppose, the, the entry point even. 
yeah, and to give people different exposure. Different consumers want different things, hundred mm. percent. And um, you know, the people that say I'll, I'll never stay in a caravan park, ultimately they do for the same for the reasons yeah, you've yeah. just said. They want a hot shower, or they want to connect to the power, or you know. Um, but if they don't want to stay in a caravan park, you can't make them. Yeah, and again, yeah. it comes so. back to what the experience is, and um, you know, again, we're very very clear on what our target market is at Tiona. We've got another park out at Clarence Town at Williams River um, and it's a completely different park to Tiona yeah. and it is more of that um, sort of back to nature traditional style caravan and camping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's like just over the bridge on the left. That's so, the one, yeah, yeah right by the river. Yeah, beautiful spot. So what was it, you know, it sounds like you went through a few different industries and, and you know, tangential, but as soon as you got into the caravan and camping industry, did you know that that was where your passion lied or how long did it take you to figure that? Um. No, I actually really struggled the first six months. Mm-hmm. It was a massive culture adjustment, I think. And again, going from hotels where it's a very structured industry, it's um, the, the op- yeah, mm-hmm. the, well, the opportunity for career progression. And I've always, always was, particularly when I was younger, fairly ambitious. So yeah. always had sort of a two or three or five year plan as to where I wanted. To, and I knew I wanted to be in, in, at that time in hotel management. Um, but it takes a long time. Because there's so many levels of management to work your way up through. Um, But I think after that initial culture adjustment in the caravan and camping industry, I learned to love it because of that collegiate nature of it, because of that um, they just have all all the parks and even on the trades and manufacturing side, there's just such a propensity to share information, to share knowledge, to help build other businesses up Mm. for the good of the whole industry. And, you know, don't get me wrong, love the hotel industry, learnt a lot, and there's a lot of transferable skills between the two. Mm. But that sense of community and I think the values of the caravan industry probably more closely aligned with my own personal values as well. Well, I can tell just by talking that it's something that you're very passionate about, so that definitely comes across. Um, As far as, you know, again, that that transition, um, you know, how, how long did you, about six months it took? Yeah, I think yeah. it was about six months and like I said, I was very lucky to have some some great mentors and role models in the industry as well, yeah. um, both within my park but even within the greater caravan and camping industry and I, I think um, one of my most incredible experiences was going to a Big Four conference and I was introduced to, to a few people that were um, what I would consider legends of the industry and, and one of them in particular was introduced to him and he said, come with me. I'm going to introduce you to everyone that you need to know and basically went around and introduced me to people that owned parks in our region, people that had been in the industry that he knew I could learn off. Um, and it, again, it's that, it's just a, I guess, a core memory for me and an indicator of how um, open and how welcoming mm. the caravan industry is. You wouldn't get that in hotels. It's no. a little bit more cutthroat. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, um, you can't have one on each corner, though, with a caravan park. No, well, <laughs> I don't know. We've actually, even in the mid-coast region, um, like if you look at Foster, there's 18 mm. caravan parks yeah. in a 50k wow. radius of yeah, Foster and people don't realise there's so many. Um, you know, I often joke we're the home of caravan and camping in New South <laughs> Wales here. People just don't realise it yet. So, um, and But all the parks, like even within our region, they've all got their own strengths and their mm. own, um, I guess, things that make them unique and... Um, it, it works. It really works. Yeah. So you, you said you've got a you know a very strong core message and, and things like that. How do you pass that on to your current staff and things like that? Because that's something that, that often can be a challenge in businesses. Again, you as the business owner have got all these ideas, but unless 
the you know your frontline people are living it, then you know it's it's only just There's an idea. Disconnect, yeah. yeah. So what do you do to implement that, or to make sure that all of your staff are you know, living those same values and you know, getting that that message to the customers? Yeah. Um, it's something that it's certainly not easy. Um, and it's something that I probably don't always get right. And, um, I'm still learning as well, but, um, we do try to, I I guess it comes right back to when we're first recruiting staff, we try to bring staff on that share those same values in the first place. Um, so I do try to take the, one of the best pieces of advice I got was hire slow, fire fast. Um, so I do try to take that approach of hiring slow and taking the time um, that's been a bit more challenging the last 12 months, yeah. trying to find it. it. For a little while there, Higher it was really almost a matter – well, yeah. for a little while there, it was more a matter of hire whoever yeah. applies because yeah. there's no other option. Like it was, it's been really hard, and I know most business operators have been struggling to find staff, and it's mm. almost if you apply, you've got a job. Mm-hmm. Um, but more broadly, we do try to hire based on values, hire based on attitude. I've always believed that you can teach someone anything if they've got the right attitude. Um, and so again, having that positive mindset and we do try to communicate what the values of our business are. Um, I'm always very, very open and try to be as, as hands-on and as, um, you know, working alongside the team as much as I can. That has also changed more recently as, as our businesses have grown and I've had to step back and, and work on the business as opposed to in the business. Um, but again, I'm incredibly fortunate to have amazing managers who, do believe in what we're trying to achieve um, and then work with the teams to sort of communicate that. And, and I think having the processes to support that's really important as well. Yeah. Something they can refer back to just to make sure if they're ever uncertain. Exactly. Yeah. So, and giving people different levels of accountability as mm, well or yeah. giving them all, you know, making them know that they're accountable, yeah. um, but also making sure that that's done in a way that hopefully makes them feel empowered, yeah. um, that they can make a decision on the spot, you know, that's going to be in the best interest of the customer mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, um, you know, in the best interests of themselves. Yeah, because it, being able to make the decision at the most local level, so the person at the desk being able to make a simple decision, if it needs a little, if it's a little bit harder, maybe they go to their supervisor, it goes to their supervisor. It, it creates a much better buy-in, I imagine, like because the person delivering the message agrees that it's the best mm. that it could be because either I've made it up or someone I really care about made, has made it up, not somebody sitting in their office in corporate Sydney. Yeah. And again, they're not always going to get the decision right mm-hmm. at any level, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but they'll learn from that. Yeah, the confidence and to I think particularly that's one, been one of the biggest lessons that I've learned and probably still learning, to be honest, is that unless you step away, people can't step up. Yeah. And yeah. you need to give them the space to make those decisions. And that might also mean making mistakes. Um, but in the same way that I was given the opportunity to learn, they need to have that opportunity to learn from their own experience as well. And yeah. I think ultimately it's a little bit of short-term pain sometimes. And, and you know, business owners will relate. You, you do get frustrated sometimes and go, well, that's not the decision I would have made. Yeah but it's focusing on that longer term. I think ultimately our businesses will be stronger as a result by having those staff that um, are being given permission to make those decisions mm-hmm. yeah. along the way. I think I think it was a um, Phil Knight quote. 
it says in the book something along the lines of, and don't quote me on it, something <laughs> along the lines of don't tell them how to do it, tell them what you want them to do and let them surprise you with the results. And uh, when I was like originally reading it, I used to be like, how do you do but that? You because do that. you can't, that's impossible. But it, it probably translates to pretty much what you're saying, which is that they know what you want to achieve, let them make the decision. They might mm. not always get it right, but yeah. at least it was their decision and Again, pending they're good people and they're good employees, they'll improve they'll from, from it. it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that comes back to an earlier point as well about having a really, really clear understanding. Like at, at my level, my I've got the experience and I need to go in confidently and make the decision, say this is our market, this is our direction. Mm-hmm. The smaller decisions along how we actually achieve that, as long as they're keeping that in mind and it aligns with mm. our vision and it aligns with our target market, um, you know, most of the time the decision they make is going to be right. And I see it all the time from the staff where they will make a decision and I go, you know what, that's actually a really good idea. Mm. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Um, and, and oftentimes if it was a mistake or whatever, you can bring it back to that as, you know, did it align with this or that and ask them that and then ask them what they could have done differently and yeah. again, you'll, you'll then quickly tell if they're the right person by, by yeah. asking that. Absolutely. Um, we've talked a lot about caravan and camping. You guys do a lot more than that out where you are weddings and um, a function centre all that sort of stuff. Do you want to talk us through any of that, how that came about? Yeah, look, um, my my business partner um, and the majority owner of most of our businesses is just um, an absolutely incredible person. Mm-hmm. So when you talk vision, when you talk direction, this guy knows 100% clear um, where, where we want to go. And I think, again, that sort of translates through all areas of the business. So um, we've got Tiona Holiday Park and then at Tiona we've got the wedding and event venue, which which does drive a lot of our market decisions for that um, park uh, and a little cafe out there now as well, doing coffee as well. Um, but we've also got uh, a few other businesses as well and under my portfolio we've sort of diversified. We've also got the uh, Marina Bar and Cafe, mm. a little restaurant just on the waterfront in Foster. Mm. Um, and as I mentioned, we've got the park out at Williams River and won a tender last year from the Dungog Council to build a greenfield caravan park out at Dungog, yeah, aimed at the mountain bike market. So, And that's going to be incredible. But, um, you know, again, I, I work very closely with Rob, who's our owner, and um, – the, the vision and, and what we do is all about connecting the dots and bringing these different businesses together and that's why our portfolio is so diverse. Um, but underpinning that is a real desire and drive to create um, things and, and to see these businesses reach their full potential. And you look at somewhere like Tiona as a classic example, um, it didn't have the greatest reputation before we took over, it wasn't performing um, again, it just came back to that needing that little bit of uh, love and attention and capital investment helps. Um, <laughs> but um, you you can't put the capital investment in it without knowing the direction that you're going and without yeah, um, knowing how to add that product in the right way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why it's, it's just been an exciting journey and an exciting group to be a part of uh, because I wholeheartedly believe in that we are creating things and ha- leaving these businesses and not just the businesses, but the broader visitor economy as a result, um, better than it was when we found it. Yeah. And because without that strategic plan and vision, it can seem like bad money over good. Yeah. Like if someone's already spent money on it. Why isn't it performing? If you can clarify why that is, it makes it pretty easy to spend more money to make it work. Yeah. And I'm learning that, um, you know, one of the best things is there's, there's 
always examples of where things have been done really well, whether it be in our same industry or in other industries. And I guess using that as a bit of a template mitigates some of that risk um, mm. of that investment of going, if there's a proven template of how a restaurant works best or how a cafe works best or how a park works best, and we're going through that exercise with um, with Dungog at the moment in terms of, you know, what does the perfect holiday park look like um. when you're designing it? Um, and I'm having to kind of, uh, let go, I guess, of some of my assumptions and, and be open to, you know, learning from what yeah. other operators have done uh, and what lessons there can be there to ensure that we're doing what's best for the business. Yeah, because we drove through a place in um, Tassie. I can't remember what it was called. It was like a mountain park town, mountain bike town, I guess you'd call it. And it was like crazy when you drove in there and there's just everyone's on bikes mm. and, and at the pub and having beers and then their bikes are just stacked everywhere. Yeah. And I'd remember seeing it not long before that on Hamish Blake's Instagram and I thought that's a really cool spot. But it's obviously a very different market to what you would attract in Tiona. So you've got to create a different a different product to give them. You've got to market it to different people. You've got to, I suppose, build the entire park differently to what Tiona will be because <coughs> – benefit of the owner is you guys have a beautiful beach on one side and the lake on the other yeah. absolutely yeah. and it's it's definitely a part of that i think there's similarities in that the minimum expectation when it comes to sites and cabins are the same mm-hmm. um but it's the facilities that you put in and how that then is tailored to that experience that the guests are looking for um and again being part of that destination and thinking destination first and business second uh, where you're then aligning your business with the, the greater region and what its strengths are. Yeah, to create the benefit for the region itself. Or for both. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. Is there a tool that you couldn't live without? Oh, um, Apart from money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, probably my phone. If I lost my yeah. phone, I'd be done for because yeah. it has everything. I have my emails on it. I have my calendar on it. Um, I think um, there's a lot of tools I use and, um, you know, various tech, but I don't know, I tend to be a little bit old school. Mm. I cannot go past, I still use my diary, like a physical paper diary. And it's, you know, I've tried to use Outlook calendars and that sort of thing and I don't know, maybe I'm just getting old, but I just struggle to keep it updated and use it. Having my physical diary there, I can take it anywhere with me. I don't have to worry about my phone running or computer running out of battery. I keep my notes in it of what I've got to do and I think it just helps keep me focused of, you know, what am I doing this week? What needs to happen next week? Um, Where are we going? And I, I retain information better if I write it down as opposed yeah. to if I type yeah, yeah. it. Well, you're not I having don't remember notifications things. pop up when you're halfway through typing stuff yeah, and exactly. things like that yeah. too. So that's, yeah. that's one of the most distracting so things I think about it's, phones. It's such a small thing and there's yeah. so much tech and so many great apps out there uh, and I use a lot of them, but I just, mm. yeah, I'm old you school. couldn't live without the paper diary. Absolutely. Yeah. From, um, from listening to you and from this conversation we've had so far, I, I would think that probably the biggest tool and might not, be thought of by you as a tool but it's network like you've obviously got a very strong network in the industry you live in yeah um and undoubtedly you leverage that a lot i know in my industry i do i've got a fairly strong network and it's great because as soon as even if you want to gossip i wanted to gossip the other day about <laughs> something and I, I rang a mate of mine who works in a, a pest business in a different area i said oh you wouldn't believe what this guy just said to me like yeah <laughs> blah, blah blah about a 
one of the nationals that we both compete against. It was, um, it's nice even just to lean on someone like that. But you've obviously got a pretty strong network in your industry um, mm. and you leverage that a lot. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's something I wouldn't have even thought of that as a tool. But I guess, yeah, in terms of a, a resource to kind of pull from and, and use, absolutely. The caravan camping industry has a strong community and, um, you know, I've made lifelong friends from the time I've been in it. I've still got a lot of friends in the greater tourism industry. Um, and again, you know, I'm on the, the fortunate to be on the board for Destination North Coast. And part of that is sort of a desire to I've always said create, don't criticise. Mm. Uh, if you're going to say that something could use improvement, you've right. got to be prepared to step up and contribute. Um, but part of that is also continuing that network um, of people and drawing on. And I learn from the people on the existing board and from the other destination networks. There's some amazing ideas. There's some amazing examples of entrepreneurship out there. Um, there's just so much knowledge that the wider tourism industry has um, and in and, and business as well. Uh, but I think, you know, as we talked about earlier, the people in our business as well, mm-hmm. um, you know, they – I have limited experience, I guess, or I've got experience in business um, that I try to bring and I try to create from. Um, but there's so many fresh perspectives and different knowledge and different experiences that these people in our businesses bring that I can learn from as well and mm-hmm. that our other managers can learn from. And it's probably not something, to be honest, that I draw from enough, mm-hmm. um, but I do, you know, always appreciate it and try to have conversations and try to understand, um, you know, how we can perhaps use that to, to strengthen our businesses as well. Yeah. Because business can be um, quite an isolating feeling sometimes if you don't have that network or you don't sort of create that network. And a lot of people and, and my parents probably a good example in which they isolated themselves in business because everyone was a competitor and like they had friends in the industry naturally. But there's just such a big resource of people up and down the coast that aren't direct competitors, even people that are competitors who, even if it's just for a chit-chat and a beer yeah. Friday afternoon. Like a, I think people underestimate the value of that network. Like I said, whether it's people in the industry, people in your, in your um, friends group um, or people within your actual business to leverage them because the whole benefit is that they might have a different perspective that you do, um, which will give you a different answer that you would have never came up with. Um, But they also, if they're a good enough person, they'll also probably give you the hard truth, which is that you're not always right. (laughs) Um, And it's a a key, I think, problem with businesses and business owners is that we, a lot of the times we don't have someone to answer to. Yeah. Um, so we might always think that we're right and, and think that we're making the right decision. You get used to being the one that makes the decision, so you just make it. Um, so it's nice to have that network to at least bounce those things off so that hopefully someone will tell you you're an idiot before you make a fool of yourself. Yeah, exactly. And look, I'm very lucky to have a, quite a few people that um, are... <laughs> Willing all, to call you an all, idiot. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, always happy to be honest. Um, and I think that... Um, yeah, having that honesty and having those people that do keep it real and keep you grounded, um, you know, is is definitely beneficial um, mm-hmm. and helps you be a better business owner or a better business manager as well. Mm-hmm. Jake always likes to ask this question, but I might do it because yeah. it just segues really well, which is that like, is there something though, then a decision that you've made that looked like a failure that led to being a success? Like it might have been a decision that you made where that, 
at first appeared to be going wrong um, and maybe you pivoted from it, but from it you learned something and you were able to apply it and um, turn it into a successful opportunity. Yep. Um, oh, God, there's countless examples <laughs> yeah. of times I thought I had it right and I got it completely wrong. Um, look, I think when I look back with hindsight and, and particularly over the course of, of sort of the last 10 years and the transition from the, the hotel industry to the caravan and uh, camping industry, I think every business I've worked and I've walked away from with a lesson that I've learned or something that I realised there was either a gap in my knowledge. Um, I know one of my uh, previous businesses I went into, I had a very, very strong operational knowledge. Uh, went in thinking that that would automatically translate into, um, you know, being a good manager or, or being able to run a business and then realised very quickly that there was a few gaps in my knowledge that I needed to work on. Um, particularly when it comes to, to financial accountability. Um, I learned how to, I learned my way around a budget spreadsheet very, very quickly. Um, so, you know, things like that. Um, I think even within our um, current businesses more recently, um, uh, there's been a few sort of lessons I've learned more around um, uh, compliance and licensing. And again, we did everything right, but it's identifying what the gaps in my own mm. knowledge were um, and I think that's probably been the biggest lesson more recently is knowing what your limits are in terms of your experience will only get you so far. You've got to make sure that you're keeping up to date with that knowledge um, because the business environment is constantly changing and particularly as we're taking more businesses on within our group, um, that requires perhaps a different skill set or a different knowledge set. So it's been a big lesson is keeping your knowledge and keeping your skills up to date and mm. continually improving them as well. Yeah. I think that might be nice for our um, listeners to hear because you sound like a very strategic person. You you love plans and you said you've always had a five-year plan but stuff goes wrong and the mm. difference is being able to adapt those plans or having the plans in place so you can say, look, I've got a contingency for this. It's written in paper right here. All i got to do is you know, divide it by one now. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's just an equation basically. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, and then so – we're coming out of hopefully what's been a pretty good bounce back season for your industry. Um, last year was a little bit traumatic in mm. that it looked like it was going to be a cracker and then yeah. things happened. Um, how's the vibe in the industry? Look, I think it varies depending on where you go. Um, I think here on the mid coast, we have had a strong summer. Um, it's interesting in that um, we've had these conversations at a, a sort of wider regional level as well and that we thought we'll come out of COVID and floods and everything else that's gone on and we'll things will go back to normal. Yeah. And I think we are certainly seeing last year winter, um, which is used to traditionally be a quieter period for tourism operators on the mid-coast. Um, last year winter was very, very strong. Mm -hmm. um, this year we're seeing what I would cautiously call a return to more traditional booking patterns in terms of it's not as long a lead as it was last year. However, the it, it comes back to there's been so much change, external change with COVID and floods and fires that we actually don't know as business operators what normal looks like anymore. Yeah. And I alluded to that earlier. And I'll, I'll sort of expand a little bit more on that. Even before COVID in 2020, we had the bushfires, so it wasn't a normal year. The last normal year we had, if you call it normal, was 2018. 
That was five years ago. Yeah. yeah. And the way that the consumers behave, the motivations, the booking patterns, where they're going, how they're going there, has changed significantly. The technology's changed. The way we live and work was being able to work from home. Um, you know, people's values have actually changed over the last five years. And I don't think this year will be normal. We're looking at, if not a recession, then at least a softening of the economy with interest rates. So this year is not going to be normal. Yeah. Next year probably won't be either. Ah, so I don't know that, uh, you know, there's no normal anymore. Yeah. Um, and again, that comes back to in terms of business agility, uh, working at how we can best navigate the next two years, five years, ten years. Because as businesses, I don't think we can rely on normal anymore. We can't. We've got to learn to expect yeah. the unexpected almost. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's been a lot of talks about resilience and strength and better together and all that sort of thing, which is important. And I think we've, we've learned we're resilient. We don't need to know any, we don't need any more challenges to test us. Um, but I think what business operators do probably, uh, and they are doing, is the importance of collaboration, the importance of network, but also the importance of remaining agile mm. because it might not be a pandemic next time or yeah. a plague of flying locusts. Uh, we haven't had that yet, um, but there will be something. I think that's the, and there's that whole quote that, you know, uncertainty is the only certainty. Yeah. We mm -hmm. don't know what the future holds yeah. for businesses, um, but you can be confident there will be something. And as long as you have strong business planning, strong teams, um, and a strong focus on on good processes and good customer service, then I think you can navigate through that. Yeah, because it, it's a good point because I came in, like I've been around business my whole life, but I probably realistically came into business maybe 2009 softly um, and then 2015 took over management of it and until 2019 then it was just smooth sailing virtually like we, we had a drought coming up and bushfires that sort of stuff but um, even from 2009 on like 2018 hurt the world obviously uh, 2008 sorry hurt the world um, Australia was still seeing impacts of that around 2012 2013 mm -hmm. uh, housing stuff wasn't it, like it's still 7% interest rates by that stage so that like there were but it was a pretty stagnant time like it was just growth time mm -hmm. from from 2009 till yeah, 2019 and then when we expected to, oh, well, this is that fallback that all our, you know, grandparents told us about. It started growing faster, yeah. Um, and now we're at a point where, we're like, oh crap, we've been pretty comfortable for ten or fifteen years now. We've been such a luck, you know, Australia and New Zealand are the lucky countries. We've, and I look at the younger generations. I even look at myself, and you know, jokingly had a conversation uh, with someone last year that I've, you know, I haven't been through a recession in my working mm. life. Yeah. And most people my age and younger haven't. Yeah. Um, I remember my parents saying to me when I left home and went to uni in terms of saving and budgets, if you ever buy a house, you need to be prepared to pay up to 15 to 17% interest on, mm. your, on your mortgage. And I went, oh, yeah, okay, I'll keep that in yeah. mind. And it was, you know, not even, I think it was, you know, as you say, about that 7 8%. But, um, you know, it's interesting watching the response to, uh, what's happening with the interest rates in the economy at the moment. There's a lot of people that haven't lived it yeah. and a whole generation mm. that hasn't had to do it tough and they yeah. haven't, you know, the different challenges I think now than what there was and we may never see those same challenges again. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it'll. at the same time I think we do probably have a lot more of a positive mindset um, in terms of and a different approach to overcoming those challenges. And I think, 
you know, to that point, the businesses that do have the strong plans that are agile, things like that, will be able to survive what's coming or, or you know, whatever happens because of those reasons, you know, when they need to, you know, because they're agile enough, if they need to tighten, you know, certain things, they will be able to. And, you know, whereas, again, in the last 10, 15 years, as almost anyone has been able to succeed, even if they didn't have those things, because... Yeah. You know, the times have been good. So, um, you know, the the best businesses will still be able to survive it. So I think, again, for for those that are in business, um, you know, look at those things and and make sure you're you're set up and and agile, able to change, um, you know, because it'll be a good time still. Yeah. And I think to your point, the the planning obviously makes you comfortable with it. The five-year plan is almost never go how they say they're going to <laughs> no. on paper but Back the intention yeah the intention is that you've got you've got a goal that in five years is what we want to look like even if the stuff in the middle doesn't feel the same way yeah. at least you've got a north star to point at and i think um it was wade Death made the comment on the podcast that it's like the apollo 13 mission the one that made it to the moon mm. like a 90 or 95 percent of the time they were off course but they yeah. made it to the moon like the intention wasn't to follow the course it was to get to the moon so mission accomplished yeah. i suppose and that's the benefit to planning and, and budgeting and all that stuff that you're talking about that you seem a lot better at than probably jake and i yeah. put together <laughs> um is is that you, you the clarity around this is exactly what we're going to do. This is what it looks like right now, um, but we can adjust that in the next, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to build another five-year plan next year. And I um, think for different business owners, that looks different as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I know some incredible business owners that don't have a documented business plan. It's in their head. Yeah. Um, which, you know, and it's probably a lot more comprehensive than anything I yeah. could put down. But um, I think it is um, useful even if you've got it in your head and you have a clear idea of what your strategy is for, and everyone's got a strategy, whether they know it or not. But mm. I think it is good to document it from a succession planning perspective. You don't yeah. know what the future holds or what can happen. So putting it down on paper can also help you see where the gaps are and potentially where there's opportunities you're missing are. Mm-hmm. Um, but ultimately the, the key to the planning and or more the key to staying agile with your planning is keeping in touch with your customer. Constantly talking yeah. to your customer and asking them, you know, is this still is what I'm providing in terms of this service or the, this product still meeting your needs? Mm-hmm. Is this still, um, you know, relevant to you? Is this still providing value to you? You know, in terms of price point. Um, and so I think constantly asking yourself and asking your customers those questions, even if you don't have it documented, you're going to be be able to be or in a better position to be agile if something yeah. does happen because you're in touch with your customers, you're understanding where it's going and you might be able to get ahead of that a little bit if there's an issue. Yeah. This is a question that always gets me out. I don't by any means expect you to answer it. Um, <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> but the, like at price points, we usually set them off what it costs plus profit and that's that. Um, the thing that gets me, like especially in our industry, right, you can't just say like, oh, well, now – now your home loan's gone up, our price can come down because there's minimum costs that we need to meet. Normally, you've got employees whose houses are becoming more expensive. Your own house is becoming more expensive to operate as well. So you can't just say, all right, no dramas, we'll, we'll cut the price because we've actually been ripping you off for 10 years. <laughs> like, yeah. that, that's not quite what happens. So I just don't know how that looks like when you take it to market and they say, oh, we just can't afford it. Oh, cool. I can't afford to do it any cheaper. Yeah. Like, uh, 
I suppose you just try and find that middle ground there somewhere and, and give them a different opportunity. Yeah, I think it's the value is the key thing. You know, you figure out how you can give them value, maybe in different ways or something yeah. like that. So, you know, yeah, again, as long as you've got a your proposition is value to them. Yeah, definitely. And there's always it, maybe you, the market positioning is not right. There's yeah. di- different markets. Some markets are more price sensitive um, and we certainly see that in, in tourism. Um but it's, yeah, I would 100% agree it comes down to value. You can't discount. You've got to be, I guess, confident with this is where we're priced yeah. and we're priced here because, one, everything's getting really expensive. Um, yeah. And I think that's a reality as things are going to continue to get more expensive, for at least for the short term. Um, but it's, yeah, I'm confident that what I'm <clears> – <throat> confident that what I'm offering actually is worth this price and you shouldn't ever have to apologize or discount or say it's worth less. And you do see that a lot in um, particularly in small businesses where it's individual operators, uh, you know, I'm sorry, it costs so much or, you know, maybe I could, no, don't work around it. Have confident that what you're offering is it's, it's not just the product or the service. It's the years of experience that you've got behind you or it's the work that you put in after hours to build and develop and grow your business. That has value and that has to be monetized in some way as well. So, uh, yeah, I would say to any sort of business operators, just be confident in what your value proposition is. Yeah, because we've got a business we not long launched of property maintenance stuff like lawn mowing, that sort of stuff. And one of my, well, my operator with that, I was talking to him the other day and he's like, oh, talking to this client and they said the hourly rate's a bit high and I was like well you've seen the figures that we've worked off like unless I'm wrong it can't be too high like that's what it's going to cost us to operate plus profit like yeah. end, of, end of story there mm-hmm. like what we need to do is figure out what exactly why are they coming to us then like if they've got someone that's cheaper how can we show them that like you better off paying more because at least you're getting what you want mm-hmm. um and he's like oh I was talking to a mate on the weekend and his friend has a similar business and they charge X. And I was like, oh, I wonder how they're going. Maybe I've missed something. Yeah. He's like, oh, no, you said that it's not worth it doing it at that. And I was like, well, <laughs> I think that answers the question, doesn't yeah. it? Is that, exactly. Is that like the the issue is less our price point in that in that section. It's either the market, like it, maybe that person fits into a market that doesn't expect Actuals, what we're willing yeah. to offer um, or it's our ability to communicate what we're giving Mm. rather than just what we're taking, which is the money. Like what are we giving Mm. in return for that money? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Interesting. That's me done, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, the the question we always like to end on is that – I shall have a perfect answer for this one too. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure now. Yeah, you really (laughs) – You just jinxed me. (laughs) Um, If we got you on the podcast again in five years, what would you like to be talking about then? (laughs) Wow, I love these questions, these blue sky And it's something I um, I probably have been, and I think other business owners would be the same, I think um, I've probably been living a lot in the present and less in the future in, in the last couple of years with, um, you know, understandable reasons. Um, I think it's a really good question. You probably, I don't know that I do have a perfect answer. Um, look, I'd probably want to be um, still talking about the same things, um, you know, still finding business opportunities, creating business opportunities. Um, I think what we do have um, as an opportunity for businesses in our region is the opportunity for a lot more collaboration. 
Um, and so probably in five years' time, that's what I'd like to see is more business-to-business um, packaging, more business-to-business support. And, you know, the local business chambers, um, particularly out at Foster, are doing a fantastic job at facilitating that. Um, definitely uh, in the tourism space, um, really keen on seeing our region grow as, as I said, the home of caravan and camping in New South Wales. And we've got so many great holiday parks, seeing collaboration between those and and really defining our region um, and, and strengthening the industry there. Um, and even the broader North Coast has got so much to offer, um, you know, seeing more infrastructure investment and a lot of that's going to come between collaboration between operators and between region, neighbouring regions as well. So I think that's what I'd probably like to see is and being able to be a part of that and hopefully in five years' time saying that I've helped contribute in some way um, to that happening would be nice. Excellent. Thank you very much. Perfect that's all right. Thanks, Perfect guys. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> <laughs>